Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Are you ready? Let's get to it. With buyers becoming increasingly knowledgeable, informed, and demanding, as consumers, we want to try a product. We want to use it. We want to engage with it and see if it makes sense for us before ever talking to someone from an organization. So having a freemium or a self-service or some kind of try and buy offering is becoming more popular for businesses to really engage their potential prospects where it makes sense. But how do you know if this product-led strategy and motion will work for your business? And if it is, how do you know when, if ever, is the right time for sales to engage with the user? Today's podcast is sponsored by Outreach.io. Outreach is the first and only engagement and intelligence platform built by revenue innovators for revenue innovators. Outreach allows you to commit to accurate sales forecasting, replace manual processes with real-time guidance, and unlock actionable customer intelligence that guides you and your team to win more often. Traditional tools don't work in a hybrid sales world. Find out why Outreach is the right solution at click.outreach.io slash RevEngine. In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Tim Geisenheimer, the CEO and co-founder at Correlated, and I discuss what companies are doing right and what they're doing wrong when it comes to this PLG model. So please take a listen. And as always, make sure to listen to the end for a few surprises. So excited to be here today with Tim Geisenheimer, the co-founder and CEO of Correlated. For those of you who may not be familiar with Correlated, Correlated is the first ever product-led revenue platform that uses insights from the people using your product to alert your revenue team and trigger that next best action. So welcome, Tim, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. So let's talk, let's, let's talk a little bit about your backstory, you know, your career journey prior to Correlated. You've had a long career. I saw in a number of different roles. You've been in sales, you've been in business development leadership, but you've also been a CEO, COO, a venture partner, and a previous founder. So this isn't sort of your first, first rodeo. Can you share more maybe about your background and your career journey prior to Correlated? Yeah, happy to do it. Yeah. So, you know, as you, as you noted, I've uh, spent my career in a, in a couple different roles, but predominantly focused on kind of the go-to-market side and and sort of sales and, and partnerships and got my, my start in my career in, it wasn't called SDRs back then or SDR role, but <laughs> basically an SDR role. And yeah, yeah, so I've been around long enough to predate the SDR. And I was in a, a company called CNET, which um, is actually a, a media advertising company. So I, I was selling digital advertising on their on their website. So doing a lot of cold calling, cold outreach and kind of worked my, my way up there to eventually kind of run the largest territory and I always felt sort of drawn by entrepreneurship though. And when a friend of mine left to join a, a small startup uh, and asked me to help him run a, a new team there, a new division within that startup, you know, I kind of jumped uh, at the chance uh, 
And then I, I kind of went and did that, built up a team of, of sort of BDRs, SDRs there. Uh, again, not really called that at the time. And we decided, <laughs> my friend and I, actually to start a, a company. And this was an, an advertising and technology company called Tap Commerce. So we raised a few rounds of venture and uh, eventually we were acquired by Twitter. And I ended up running uh, sort of a larger, larger sales team uh, while while there uh, at Twitter. And always, again, still kind of uh, bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. And so I ended up leaving Twitter to attempt to start a sales tech company because throughout my entire career of running sort of sales teams and being a salesperson was always at the forefront of RevOps, sales ops, and that side of the sort of sales uh, part of the equation. And I always was fa- you know, fascinated by the, the ops side. That, that company actually didn't end up getting off the ground, really. And I joined uh, a company called Timescale as head of sales. And that's actually where I, I figured out kind of the, the problem here that we're trying to solve at Correlated. And so I was happy to dive into uh, that uh, in a moment. But yeah, following Timescale, ended up uh, doing a little bit on the venture side with some former colleagues and, and, then, and then ended up founding uh, Correlated. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, sometimes, you know, you touched on it a little bit, but I think, you know, often when founders start a company, you know, stems from, you know, personal or professional experience or a challenge, or maybe it's a problem, right? So when you and your co-founders decided to launch the company, you know, was there that kind of aha moment or maybe a specific problem that you faced that led to the yeah, idea? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I have had this background, as I, I just said, in, in kind of sales and leadership. I've always been kind of the VP sales who likes ops. You know, not all of us on the sales <laughs> side are, are, are fans of getting our hands dirty on the upside, but I was always that person. Often, in a startup, you know, as you know, first sales leader, first sales person, sometimes and running a team and standing up Salesforce myself, like doing a lot of the <laughs> um, kind of early admin stuff. And I, I, I could tell from your expression, you know, the, you're like a little horrified to hear that. But I, I you know, I often handed it off to. No, I love that. <laughs> I, I actually love that because when you talk about after, I'm like, oh, you're talking my language. It's like I want to dive into that too. <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm just very off-centric. And so when I got to Timescale, you know, this is where I really experienced a problem that we're trying to solve at, at Correlated. It's kind of an, an ops type problem. Basically, Timescale is this open source database company. And I think you have a little bit of background in open source databases as well. So I you, do. you might know this problem a bit. We basically had a ton of free open source users. We had no idea, you know, which companies they're part of. We didn't really know how they were using our product as well. And I needed to know on the go-to-market side, which of these people were hitting maturity in terms of product usage of the database. And that was how I was going to really do a lot of my targeting and filtering for the go-to-market side. Because talking to people when they were too early in using the product actually wasn't productive at all. It didn't make sense for sales to have conversations at that point, especially when it was a free open source product. And so we had to pull in product usage data at the Salesforce kind of really painfully and manually to then use for filtering and targeting for the sales side. And my co-founder who I worked with there and I who are now here at Correlated, she was the first product manager. Really, She helped me do this. And we kind of were like, why is this so hard to do? This is such a pain. But we were closing initial deals based on, you know, using this data, this enriched kind of uh, information about uh, product usage within the database. And so the light bulb kind of went off at that point. Like it can't, you know, it shouldn't be this hard for companies that have this sort of product-led or, or free go-to-market motion to help their sales teams understand who's using the product and when they hit certain inflection points or signals that indicate sales should should be in touch with them. So that was kind of the impetus for the idea and, and why we started Quality. I love that. I love that. You know, I think everyone is talking about product-led, right? PLG has just become such a 
such a common term. It's almost feels a little buzzwordy, you know, a little bit, but I guess what does, you know, what does product led mean? Yeah. To you? I mean, I think it's definitely gotten a lot of attention on it now and, and it, you know, getting to the point where it can be meaningless, but I, I think that there has a really specific meaning. And I, and I think when people think about it, based on the definition I believe it has, it starts to make sense. So basically, if you have a SaaS company, a software company that offers a product that anyone can start using without any friction whatsoever, an individual user can just start using it, uh, that's what it really means to be product-led. You can just start using a self-service product without without any friction uh, whatsoever. And so I think where the complexity starts to get layered in is once you have a bit more of a sort of advanced operation where not only do you have that self-serve product where maybe someone can start using it for free or they can put a credit card in and start paying for it. I think things like Zoom or Slack uh, or Calendly are, are sort of examples there. But then you also start to have an enterprise product. You start to have features that are more geared towards you know many different users, hundreds of users or you know, a more security-focused approach uh, because enterprises need security features. Then you have a sales team that might need to you know, sell that product and, and have a bit more of a, a structured sales process around it. The combination of that self-serve piece and then the sort of more traditional sales piece is where things start to get interesting and you start to need to have different types of operations to and processes to help make it you know more effective and, and potentially tools like Correlated uh, to help you do a better job there. That's awesome. So, so you said operations and processes in the same statement, and we have so much to talk about. <laughs> I think we will have we will have so much to talk about. Um, so, what are what are the major differences from your perspective between being product led, right, versus being sales? Yeah, I think the biggest difference in in sort of product led versus sales led is that you know sales led, which is how most uh, enterprise software companies you know have existed you know for most of the history of enterprise software basically means you know you have a product that if you want to sell it to somebody if someone wants to use it they have to talk to somebody first they have to maybe go through some sort of vetting process they fill out uh, a website form that says hey i want to get a demo they then you know have that for, you know sent from marketing to the right salesperson routed to a salesperson saying oh we got a demo request that salesperson might ask questions uh, maybe there's a bdr sdr that that ask those questions first before a sales force is even looped in, in the first place. Then they get the demo and, and uh, potentially there's uh, more process that goes into place before they're even uh, allowed to use the product. Often with uh, enterprise software, you have to pay before you're even allowed to use the product. And so that's like the traditional sales-led approach that enterprise software has seen for you know, decades. I think where product-led has kind of put things on its on the head a little bit is allowing people just to start using a product for free or with a credit card with no no need to talk to any human no need to go through any uh kind of hoops to get into the product you can just start using it immediately and open source is a good example of that you know you can just download a free package and as a developer start using the thing but then there's countless other examples some of which i gave before like calendly for for meeting bookings or Zoom for, for doing meeting uh, video meetings or you know, Slack for, for communications. All, all those are examples of things you can just download and start using without going through that kind of more traditional sales process. So those are kind of the, the core differences I see between being product-led versus sales-led. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. So in the early days of the company, maybe when you were in stealth mode or maybe when you were just starting out, right, you probably did a ton of research on how companies can be successful, right, with a true product-led strategy in motion. So when it comes to the strategy in motion, like what are you seeing companies doing wrong in their approach? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think 
what often happens is many companies who, you know, didn't start with a product-led motion from day one will say, hey, we want to offer maybe like some sort of free version and they'll kind of offer something for free, but the product experience isn't really designed for an end user to get a ton of value up front. It's really just designed as kind of a lead engine. And so, you know, that could be effective to a point, but it's often going to lead to maybe disappointment and then lead to maybe some uh, friction between that kind of free product usage is limited and like the sales process of that you'd had in place before, which was probably working to some extent of, you know, doing that discovery, doing that qualification, you know, going through a, a kind of rigorous set of needs requirements before you get someone into the product in the first place. So I see a lot of companies seeing kind of that, that tension there. I think there's another kind of byproduct that we often see for companies that aren't product led from day one they'll uh, immediately have salespeople kind of talking to <laughs> a, you know, a self-serve yes. user, you know, and treating it as if it's a, a lead when it's not really a lead. You know, that's not a lead in the sense of, you know, an MQL or, you know, a sign up saying, hey, I want a demo, you know, those kind of more high intent type of leads. This is someone who is coming in and they're trying to see if this product is interesting to them, if they can get some value from it. And their, their intent there was to use the product, not to necessarily talk to sales. And so I think those are some of the, the key pitfalls that we often see as companies embark on, on this journey and maybe are trying to layer in a self-serve product or a product-led approach to a, a pre-existing motion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I was smiling a bit because I've had that experience in companies that I've worked for, right? Where we start to go to kind of the self-serve motion and marketing wants to jump in, sales wants to jump in. And I kind of give the analogy of farming, right? Where it's, it's you're just laying out the seeds and you're just going to kind of let them sit there and see what sprouts up, right? You're going to nurture them, you're going to water them, but you're going to leave them alone for the most part, right? Until they're sort of at a certain point. I love that analogy. Yeah, that's how I kind of think yeah. about it. And it's as yeah, soon as no, it's, I, I love it. You'll have to use that. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, as soon as it gets to sort of a certain point, then it's ripe for somebody to go in and, you know, give it a little bit more water, give it some fertilizer, and then maybe pick it, right, and start to talk to it. But it's, I think it's really hard for companies who are in that traditional sales-led motion to not want to jump in and start to engage, right? So it's almost like just let this, you know, put the seeds out and let it just lay and don't, you know, don't bother it until it gets to a certain point. So that's great. I love that. I guess along the same lines, what are some of the things that you see companies doing right? Or maybe do you have any tips or advice for companies who, you know, who have this model? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a lot of the ways that, that we're, you know, helping companies and seeing companies that adopt correlated, you know, you know basically are, you know, comprise some best practices that, that anyone can adopt with or without us. I think we can help you kind of pour gas on some of these, uh, but, but you can yeah. adopt some of these things without without our product. So I think one of the big things that we're seeing great companies uh, in this space do um, effectively is develop what's called a PQL or PQA model or, or a mix of both. So that would stand for product qualified leads or product qualified accounts. And so essentially what that entails is kind of like that farming that you just uh, mentioned, you know, what are some of the characteristics that you can look for in your user base that indicates that they're ready for maybe some engaged from a, a human being. And that doesn't necessarily, I'll get back to that in a second, that doesn't necessarily have to be sales. And so that could be things like I described at timescale, like you know, you've hit a certain level of maturity with, with the product. And, and for us, that was a, a metric of data in the database. Did you get to a certain amount of data in the database? Okay, now that means that you actually have like probably a, a real 
you know, production database going. There's an application mm-hmm. maybe being built on top of this thing. And maybe a salesperson or a solutions engineer can contact you and say, hey, it looks like you're, you know, using this, using this database. Can we help, you know, help you be more effective with our product? So that's kind of the second piece. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be sales that's using this product mm-hmm. qualified lead kind of concept. It can be, there's different titles we've seen or, or types of roles, sales assists. So someone that's like a bit more, technical or a bit more product focused can come in and, and try and help provide more resources and get people more successful. It can be customer success or, or solutions engineering. So different roles can, can use it as well. So those are kind of two techniques bundled together. But first would be this product qualified lead concept of figuring out what product usage kind of signals indicate that someone might be more ready to have a conversation after they've gotten the value a bit with the product. And the second would be, what are some of the uh, operational process things you could do that, that aren't just strictly sending it to sales that are maybe um, having different teams that are having different kind of skill sets. I'm talking to those, those folks to, to qualify them maybe into more of a sales kind of conversation. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's great advice. Um, you know, I think as buyers, you know, and consumers, you know, we become smarter, we're more informed. We're also a lot more demanding, right? We want to try a product. We want to use it. We want to engage with it. And then we may decide to purchase or maybe purchase more, right? We do this oftentimes through this kind of freemium offering, a try and buy, you know, some kind of self-serve type of offering. But I think that, you know, as you touched on a little bit, you know, the key is really knowing when, right? And how to engage from a go-to-market perspective. So what are some of your thoughts on this shift in the way I guess people are buying. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's for the best companies with this model, it can be really powerful because a lot of what these companies are doing is basically offering a very frictionless way to spend more. So that could be in terms of having you know people pay with a credit card and it's just, you know, you add a seat without any friction, you have to talk to sales and just like click invite and then it's billed to you. It could be, you know, you're charging on a usage basis. So even if that's through an invoice or, or on a credit card, if you, you know, hit a certain threshold of contacts in your database, this is HubSpot's pricing model, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're spending more with HubSpot, you know, surprise, your, your, you know, your bill is going <laughs> up. And so I think there's a lot of power for companies that have those kind of pricing models and have that frictionless way to spend more. I mean, it's like a really beneficial model from from a sort of cost efficiency and, and sales and marketing efficiency standpoint, because you don't necessarily need people on your team to be um, doing that. And I think it maps exactly to what you said, which is buyer preferences. You know, you, you may just want to buy more contacts or add more seats without having to talk to anybody and being able to do that frictionlessly is very pro the buyer. It's pro, you know, the person on the other side who's trying to make that decision. If they can just decide they want to do more without having to, to go through a sales process, then then that's mm-hmm. great. So I think it helps both the company, the, the vendor, as well as the buyer. Uh, it's a really powerful thing for some of these SaaS companies in terms of powering their business. Yeah. Yep. I love that. I love that. So, so how does correlated help organizations, right? In terms of like not only identifying the right time, but help to enable those sort of the right workflows, right? Cause there's all that next steps that have to happen, right? Once you've identified that time and how do you ident- help that identify that, you know, based on obviously data and insights? Yeah, so there are a couple of problems that we're, we're helping to solve and, and we kind of package it together. So first is that data piece, which you mentioned. So what we do is kind of sit in between your customer data, and that's often residing in places like your CRM, so Salesforce or HubSpot. It could also be residing in places like like a CDP, so like segments, so customer data platform. 
And then the, the third big category we're seeing a huge amount of adoption and where we're integrated with is data warehouses. So that would be Snowflake, uh, Redshift, or BigQuery. And so what our platform does is allows you to take kind of those three different sources and then bring them together in one place within Correlated so that you can have sort of a full view of your customer, whether it's product usage, billing, what sales is doing, what marketing is doing, support tickets, kind of anything, uh, we're able to kind of ingest that uh, into our platform. And then the sort of other side of the equation is what kind of playbooks do you want to run as one of these product-led companies? Uh, how do you do proper engagement when someone is, is kind of is ready to talk to sales? And, and how do you set those rules? And so we help you to easily kind of build those playbooks where it's, you know, I only want my sales team to talk to somebody when they've hit a certain level of kind of usage within the product. And then they also meet maybe our ICP criteria. They're, they're mm-hmm. you know, have over 250 employees and their title is, you know, you know, VP or above or whatever it might be. So we help you kind of mix and match those different criteria about your customer to set those rules you know, for the sales time, sales side. And then lastly, we're kind of plugging into a lot of the, the, the top uh, tools that the go-to-market teams use. Tools like Outreach or SalesLoft, tools like Salesforce, Slack, HubSpot, et cetera. And we allow you to do actually dynamic personalization in a tool like Outreach, for example. So you can say, hey, uh, this person just came in, they started to uh, use the product and they invited five users in yesterday. And you can connect that to an Outreach sequence to say, hi, you know, variable first name, I saw you invited uh, five users in, which is a, a dynamic variable that we put in. So it really allows you to do personalization uh, at scale and in a way that it's really not been possible to date. I really run these playbooks in a way to engage much more relevantly to the, the customers that uh, your sales team should talk to. So that's how we help today. And the, the net result is sort of driving, you know, more pipeline and, and actually helping to get those conversions from the self-serve funnel uh, into the sales funnel. Yeah, I think a lot of companies struggle to bring all of that data together, right? Which is probably the problem that you you identified initially was just, I mean, because the data sits in all of these different disparate systems, right? And to bring it all together, but also to not just like dump all of the data into like a data warehouse or into some kind of BI, you know, use a BI tool, but be able to make sense of the data and then have, as you said, workflow and playbooks that follow along based upon certain criteria. So I think that's amazing. I can see how definitely how powerful that can be for go-to-market teams. Um, you know, when I think about when I think about the revenue engine and then this podcast, right? I'm always hoping that others will learn how to accelerate revenue growth and help power that revenue engine. And I think we've talked a, a lot about different things that they could be doing, especially in this product-led world. But I guess maybe from your perspective, you know, what are the top couple of things, you know, two or three things that you think, hey, all CEOs should be thinking about now, you know, today that are going to really have the biggest impact on their revenue? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think for, you know, other CEOs, it it depends a bit on sort of stage and and maturity of the business. So, you know, if they're a CEO kind of in in my seat or or seed to series A, early early stage company, yeah, the the biggest thing is where are my distribution channels? Where, Where am I getting Kind of new business today. How, how can I, you know, productively and, and profitably drive revenue? What do those channels look like? And you know, where can I invest the most in, in driving, you know, more from those channels? Like it's really more about new new business and figuring out kind of the right right playbooks and right approaches there. And so, you know, I've done this a few times through my career, and it's often, especially at the earliest stages, a lot of iteration and experimentation to. Uh, figure those out. And then once you kind of find something that's working, it's just really doubling down, tripling down, 
quadrupling down on on that strategy until you know that maybe stops working as productively and you're, you need to find kind of other things. And so, you know, I think to, to maybe provide some tangible examples for B2B, oftentimes it's outbound sales and doing, you know, an account-based model. Like we know we can really appeal to a certain kind of uh, ideal customer. So we're going to go kind of knock down those and then you know, it's finding the top logos, ideally knocking down some like top ones and categories, then going to every other company in that category and saying, hey, we're working with, should we work with you now? So I think those are some of the key things. For, for later stage, you know, I think it's a bit more of retention and expansion within sort of existing cohorts. And how can you think through both expansion within your core product, but then as especially as you get much later stage, what are multiple products we can sell? Are there you know, ways we can expand beyond a single product to a multi-product portfolio and go back to our existing inbuilt customer base and get them to buy more. And then obviously new customers coming on, sell them a bigger bundle from the get-go, ideally. And a lot of our customers right now fit into a bit of that later stage bucket and they're thinking about cross-sell. They're thinking about multi-product and, and we're, you know, in some ways helping them execute on those strategies. So those are kind of a couple of the tips I would say uh, that makes sense uh, to me based on different stages. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's super helpful. What about advice for other CEOs and founders? Like, do you have maybe one piece of advice, kind of that one thing that you think about makes all the difference when you start your own business? I think the, yeah, the thing that, that sort of, and I'm biased because this is how I kind of choose to operate and what I'm, what's been successful for me and my background. But like, I, I think a lot of founders are more technical because they're, you know, if you're building a software business, you you have to kind of build and, and that makes total sense. But what I've seen often trip people up is they're maybe afraid to, to go out and talk to customers. They're afraid to show mm -hmm. something that they're building before maybe it's ready or, you know, it, it's not necessarily good enough yet. So we're going to spend six months, nine months kind of building and then we'll show people. I think there's, it's a real trap because you can waste a lot of time based on whatever funding, you know, burn rate you have to build in a vacuum without getting valuable feedback from uh, potential customers on whether or not you're building in the right direction. And so my you know, advice would be always, even if you're very embarrassed about the state of your product, <laughs> you should always be you know, showing people what it looks like and what you're building and even you know, mock-ups and wireframes and a pitch deck you know, before it's even ready yeah. to try and understand, does this fit with what you know, people will buy and what they want? Is it solving the problems that I think it's solving? So I think oftentimes that's something that people do, do too late or don't do enough of mm -hmm. that I would recommend you do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that's so important because you could be building something that nobody's really that interested in or isn't going to use. I love that kind of bringing your potential buyers along, right? For the entire journey. And those can be your early adopters. They can end up being your first customers, right? Beta customers and such. That's great. I love that. So thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. But you know, as we wrap up and before I let you go, I always ask all my guests two things. One, what is the one thing about you that others would be surprised? to learn? And two, what is the one thing that you, you want everyone to know about? Well, you? I think, you know, in uh, the post pandemic world where we're all on zoom, you know, most people who I <laughs> talk to, uh, <laughs> most people I talk to on zoom would be surprised to learn that I'm six foot four. So I'm actually pretty tall. Uh, so I don't show up as, <laughs> as very tall uh, on the zoom box, but when they see me in person, like, Whoa, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a good deal larger than, than I expected. And uh, I think the other thing that you know, I, I want people to know about me. I, 
I, I might be made fun of by my, my wife for saying this, but I am a very proud native New Yorker. And so a lot of people who live in New York come from other places, which is fine. Uh, that's great. But I grew I grew up here. I love I love New York. And I get made fun of by, you know, everyone for being such a homeless for, for New York City. So that's now I I'm love that. publicly standing it. So everyone never everyone knows that. And I can be accused of being a homer some more for, for New York. <laughs> I love that. There is definitely a pride in being from New York. I mean, I'm from the Bay Area and I'm still in the Bay Area, right? So there's a, there's sort of that well, kind of great uh, too. I, West I think Coast. You, I think yeah. you have, I, I, I know a lot of people from the Bay and, and uh, there's a ton of Bay Area pride too. It's, it seems very similar in some ways to the New York. Yeah, uh, New I was York. just going to say, <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's very similar. Folks who kind of come from those areas are very proud of where they're at, where they come from in the area. So, well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much, Tim, for being a guest on the podcast. Super helpful. I can't wait to kind of go back and listen to some of the things that you've talked about, because I think there's definitely a lot of great insights there and a lot of great expertise that, you know, our listeners will be able to learn from. Awesome, Rosa. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 